I feel inferior. <laughs> I do. I feel <sighs> inferior because she has boldly done all the things. Maybe she hems and haws all day long, but she still has done it. Whatever her fears are, whatever her holds her back, it hasn't hold, held her back enough. She writes, she acts, she directs. She's not afraid to be herself in public and yet still feel that she's protecting something private. It's like, oh, I want to be that when I grow up. She was a different tone of guest than we have. We've had a couple now in a row who are like a little more, they communicate in a way that I feel more comfortable with, I would say, which is like, they're a little slower on the draw. They speak a little more methodically. They're not particularly animated in inflection and stuff, but like they still get the point across. I'm watching my own face on the screen while conversations specifically regarding women's bodies, women's orgasms, feminism. I think my job in those moments is to like be generous with silence a little bit, but I really can't help but look at my face and be like, what face am I making? I wonder what this face is saying to them, hopefully nothing. So that's something that I experienced during that conversation. I was aware at one point how generous you were being with the silence. And I thought, you know what? I know your face really well because sometimes like when the, when you'll like knit your brows a little, you're, you're trying to figure something out and I didn't see mm. that. I have thoughts of the about the female orgasm and I have thoughts about those, but I'm certain that the two of you have a frequency and a wealth of thought and information already processed that I cannot access. So I think in that moment, I was just like, I'm going to just shut the fuck up and hear what y'all have to say. But I am excited to see this show now. I, I'd i never heard of Slip. I knew who Zoe Lister-Jones was because our Venn diagrams nearly overlapped a couple of times. She had a different way kind of of speaking and approaching things. And it, it's just really thoughtful. It's not fearless. It's just present. She's very present for the dissolution of her marriage. She's very present for being vulnerable and naked, literally and metaphorically. She's very present for directing and she was very present in our conversation. I really appreciated that. So here she is, Zoe Lister-Jones. Hello. Hi, I'm Julie Zoe. Thank you so much for joining us. We know that you're on a time crunch because you're at South by Southwest, right? Can we ask what you're promoting down there? Yeah, I um, created and wrote and directed and starred in a television series called Slip that we are premiering here on Thursday and then is going to be out in the world on Roku April 21st. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Wow. You're not afraid to do anything. Wait, you said wrote, directed, starred in, and produced. Is that because you have to? Like, if you want to get it done the way you want, you may as well just do all the stuff? Yeah, in some ways. I mean, you know how it is. It's like, I I think if you can, it's so emboldening and empowering to make your own work because as an actor, so much is out of your control. I just love the intersection of all of those roles, the way that they sort of organically collide in in that atmosphere is just like the most thrilling thing in the world to me. That's awesome. That's uh, very inspiring. I think Julie and I both aspire to do all those. I mean, Julie does most of those jobs already, but... Uh, yeah, but never all yeah. at once. I find it very hard. I've directed a couple times. I could never... Directing myself, I find very 
difficult. I can't imagine being number one on the call sheet and then directing yourself at the same time. Did you step into that power really easily? Uh, And I don't mean being powerful in sort of a very traditional sense. I mean, authoritative sense of being able to conduct a set very easily and having no fear whatsoever. Was that an easy transition for you? I mean, no fear whatsoever is not something that (laughs) I've ever said (laughs) about myself. Okay. I was a very shy kid. I was a very fearful kid. I grew up in Brooklyn uh, in the 80s, which was like a (laughs) harrowing time (laughs) in Mm. my neighborhood. So I think that I like live with a lot of fear and, and I'm always surprised by myself that I choose to sort of lean into things that terrify me. Because it's not like, oh yeah, this seems like easy or this seems like something that's going to happen really like naturally. I think it's it's me like diving into something that feels like a really uncharted waters and seeing if I can do it. But I, I worked with my ex-husband for many years. On, we made a number of films together. He was directing them. We were co-writing them and and producing them and I was starring in them. And so that really served as like a boot camp for mm-hmm. me to to see um, the skills that I needed to hone as a director. But even so, I, I do think as women, it it takes um, a sort of distinct courage to step into those mm-hmm. shoes. It took me a lot longer than many of my male counterparts to to make yeah. the jump. I think because without, you know, generalizing the binary, like I do think that women tend to want to be perfect at something before they even yeah. attempt to to do it. And so it does take a, a bit of like um, an appetite for risk to to just go, you know what, I'm not going to know everything and it's okay that I'm going to be asking questions and I'm going to surround myself with people who who do know things <laughs> and learn as I'm going. And, and I think that was a really um, liberating thing for me to, to allow for myself to do. It sounds like you have spent so much time being in touch with and crafting your voice by way of all the jobs that you do. Did it help to have done that already, to have done all that work to be in touch with your voice before getting to this point? I always loved writing. And so I think I was always looking for an expression for the stories that I wanted to tell, which are always pretty deeply personal. My approach is almost diaristic. <laughs> you know, I I like sort of have an existential question or crisis <laughs> that I'm looking to answer or navigate, and I do it through my writing. And then like amazingly, the specificity of those questions for myself tend to be quite universal uh, when I share them with with audiences. I had a really bad break. It was like my first boyfriend um, in college. And I went to NYU. I was studying acting. And um, this solo, solo performance teacher said that I should write my own one-person show, which it's like so interesting that it just takes like one voice or like one person to say that, to be like, oh yeah, I, I could do that. And so I did. I, I wrote a show just completely born out of the heartache that I was experiencing from this breakup. Um, And that's how I got my first agent and manager and really Mm. set me on my path as an actor and and writer. And so I was really fortunate that like from the jump, the stories that I felt like telling or the, the, the voice that I wanted to put to my feelings then resonated in a way that sort of helped push my career forward, which is not always the case, but has been really rewarding for me. I just want to jump to the punchline a little bit. What's your new existential question? What's the abyss in front of you now? Hmm. Um, (laughs) 
Well, Slip, this show that's about to come out, is really, I think I'm still wrestling with the questions that I set out to answer in writing and making Slip, which um, is really just about, like, how to be satiated in the now. Mm. Slip really deals with, as an archetype, this this Buddhist, like, theological figure, yeah, (laughs) called the hungry ghost, which is, like, very much about this insatiable quality that lives in all of us, especially now with like Mm. Instagram and everything that's happening. It's just like, what's next? What's next? What's next? Or especially when it comes to relationships and and sexual intimacy, which Slip is very much about, I guess, how to find home within yourself or like safety within yourself so that you're not constantly looking for it in other people or in jobs or in the new pair of shoes, even though I do find safety in in new shoes. (laughs) It's hard when you're a public person to talk about your personal life, and yet you're putting so much of your personal life in your work and it's out there. As a divorced woman, I saw you are recently divorced, and then you mm-hmm. said that, that somewhat you're addressing that in your show. Can you talk about how, and I'm going to force this, quitting, uh, how quitting your marriage has informed your work right now? And obviously, I don't mean quit. Like, there are different versions of quitting. I'm not totally, saying you totally. your hands and walked away. But how did it, how did it change your creative process and, and how you are approaching things now? I wrote all seven episodes of the first season of Slip in quarantine. And it was at a pretty difficult time in my personal life. I was figuring out the end of my, my marriage was, was near. Um, and I had been with my ex-husband for 17 years. We met as like kids. And because we had worked together too, I think there's a lot of things at play. But this show in particular is about a woman who leaves her marriage and then is sort of set on this journey (laughs) where she basically fucks her way through the multiverse. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, And gets to like sort of inhabit all of her parallel lives and parallel relationships that at one Uh time were only fantasy. And now, you know, the thing that we all do, like when you meet someone and have a connection and you flash forward, like, and just like see your entire life together, this like, you know, brings that to the fore where you get to actually see the reality versus the fantasy, which I think definitely speaks to the emotional space I was in uh, when writing it and and even post-writing it. But, you know, I'm like, very lucky that my my ex-husband and I are still dear friends like he's family and so he's very supportive of of my work and that's really nice I think I had to actually before the divorce individuate my voice in a different way I think it it didn't happen after it was that moment where I decided that I was capable enough to direct myself which when you're a part of a oh. team is a difficult sort of threshold to cross so I made a film called Band-Aid. It was the first film I directed uh-huh. and wrote and starred in. I, I made it with um, a crew made up of entirely women, which was also really important to me in terms of finding that voice because yeah. ha- having been on the other side of the camera, I had witnessed, especially in television, as you know, Julie, like the rotation of directors. When a woman would come in, I would just notice the difference in the way she was spoken to, or and not always, but I was just very aware. I was sensitive to it, and I wanted to protect myself. And also just as a social experiment, see what it would feel like to, to make something in that kind of creative environment with, with all women, which turned out to be like spectacular. But that was really the first moment that I did have to say, like, I want to go make something on my own. And it wasn't yeah. easy, but it was really important for me as an artist to, 
Yeah, to individuate my voice and and to show myself that I could. And so I think it's been sort of a steady trajectory since then. So you had an experience where you had a set with all women and it went great. And I'm guessing from how you posted, like you have since hired men. In my head, the first thing it flashed was like, if I did a project with all Black people and it went great, I would never hire another white person again, probably. <laughs> Why did you hire men again after that? <laughs> I'm, I'm serious as a heart attack. Julie thing. knows I'm dead serious. <laughs> I had the best thing I've heard you say in months. I love that. I love that. I mean, the short answer is just bureaucracy. With Band-Aid, it was a very independent film. We made it for no money. So I the hiring practices were all... Um, under my purview. I see. And yeah. the next thing I made was a pilot with 20th Century Fox. And so yeah. suddenly there were a lot more people at play and the idea of me hiring all women became an HR issue. And then I worked with Blumhouse in Columbia and made a film called Craft Legacy, which again, like no one has ever discouraged me from hiring all my key department heads, you know, as women, but I've never yet been allowed to, to do an entirely female crew, which I do think is interesting because, I, I mean, the reason why I did it in the first place was because the mm -hmm. system is so broken <laughs> that yeah. everyone will just be like, no, but I've worked with this guy for forever. Like, you have to let me hire him. And then you're yeah. like, I guess so, because, yeah, he does have more experience than her because he always will. And it's the same thing with like people of color, it's like these crews are so white and male. I think you do have to like draw a line in the sand yeah. because if it's like a nebulous, like, yeah, let's try for like diverse and inclusive practices. I just, we're not there yet. It just doesn't happen organically. Right. Yeah. The legacy of experience just keeps passing down because the guy who's been doing it for the longest is going to keep getting the job and then he's going to recommend his friend and you're never going to be able to elevate the woman, the, the person of color, the whomever it is, with less experience to finally get them uh, to an equal playing field unless you do draw that line, which I think is really challenging. you got to be ready to walk away, I guess, if you draw that line and that's tough. Yeah, yeah and you yeah. have to be ready to like upset people, <laughs> which I mean, <laughs> listen, I am, you but seem I'm also... To be. Yeah. <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, you know, like even on Band-Aid, like it was interesting because like some of my um, department heads who were women were pushing back on hiring women. Like it, it's not, it it becomes quite complicated because the stakes are really high and everyone just wants to do their best work. And so you're right. basically asking people to take a risk and maybe not be able to to do their best work if someone shows up and doesn't know, especially in like departments like Grip and Electric, like it's just yeah. so, it's so hard to find women with experience that um, I think it's, it's shifting a little bit more now. But what was really like amazing to witness was that when I did say, I'm sorry, you don't have a choice hmm. on that film, there was like a mentorship that then happened. And the work was incredible because there was also a hunger from these people that didn't have experience to really show what they could do and learn. And mentorship programs are like key in, in shifting the paradigm and also just yeah. an openness to taking more risks. So you were married 
during the pandemic and your writing slip, which is leaving a marriage and fucking your way through the multiverse of, of sort of options. <laughs> That's the official subtitle, right? That's what yeah. we should look for on Roku and Wikipedia when we're looking up the film. Uh, okay. And you're writing this with your still husband mm. in the next room because you can't leave the house, really. Mm -hmm. There are fast quits and there are slow quits. And looking at this, Monday morning quarterbacking this, it's clear you were leaving that marriage to me, an mm. outsider who has never met you. How clear was it to you as you were doing this that this was a process of literally as you're putting pen to paper, typing away, going, and then, and then I I would leave, and then who would I fuck? Like that would be, you know, your brain is working it all out. I, I actually don't think it was conscious at the time. I was really fighting to stay in my marriage. We both uh -huh. were. We were in and out of an open marriage. Uh, we we were polyamorous at uh, one point, sort of leading up to to quarantine. So, so I think the show, in addition to it sort of being a way for me to navigate my own individuation, was also me exploring being married and being with other people, which was something that mm -hmm. I had been experiencing within the marriage itself. The idea of like this one anchor and then all these what ifs and who you choose and what's going to make you the happiest and how you explore non-monogamy. I think it's such a taboo subject, which I, I didn't want to talk about like on its head in this piece, but I think mm -hmm. that was definitely also fueling some of the work throughout quarantine as so many of us you know like in in mm. partnerships so many things came into hyper focus that mm. then absolutely you kind of couldn't look away from but is individuating a word or did you make it up i think it's it a word is. okay well i it's totally a word would have loved it all the same <laughs> I, when you say that you had to individuate your voice that feels like more of opening a door to something that is already there than it does building a wing of a house that is not yet built. Is mm. that how it actually mm. felt? Did it feel more like permission to think the thoughts that you hadn't been able to before? In my work or in my life? I Maybe both. I don't know. <laughs> um, especially being in like a partnership in a in a sort of like cis-hetero partnership where the man is the director. And I was like raised by like, the ultimate feminist. <laughs> um, so it's interesting that it even took me that long to like sort of individuate my voice or to find my footing as my own mm -hmm. sense of artistry. Like, mm -hmm. but it is interesting when I look back at at how long it did take me. And it did just take one woman, this, uh, this amazing producer, Alex Madigan. We had lunch one day and she said, why aren't you directing? And it was like the same thing as like the professor in college of like, you should go do this. It's like, it just sort of took one voice for me to be like, oh yeah, I, someone else sees that in me and now I can maybe see it in myself. Individuation is something that fascinates me in general. Like, I, I think like individuating from one's parents is like a lifelong, a lifelong. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, mm. if you're dead or alive, it's like that idea of like, I am my own person. I am yeah. safe within myself. I am like able to use my voice to speak to my questions and answers. And yeah, I'm still very much like in the muck of it. <laughs> but I think slip of all things is really like in the most profound process of individuation for me as an artist, certainly. How important is being a sexual being to you? And I'm putting my own process on you. I look forward to not giving a fuck about sex 
I feel like I'd be much freer. <laughs> like somehow it would allow me to live a more pure, not pure, like religiously pure, but like I would love to never want to have sex because then I would just not have to think about that. And I haven't seen Slip, but from what I'm hearing you say, being a sexual being has been a very important part of your life, of your process, even of your marriage. Do you ever have that thought or... I'm, I'm trying to force you to relate to me. You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> we meet my character in Slip at a moment of crossing a threshold. The, the past is one that is quite sexless, and she has a sexual awakening. And then that's the journey that she's catapulted on. And I don't think I've ever been a person who has had an uncomplicated relationship to sex. I would say that um, I've had a very complicated relationship to it. And I think that this show was me doing something that terrified me. You know, the centerpiece of every episode is an orgasm, and it's my naked body on the line in every episode doing Mm. that and directing myself doing that. You know, for women in particular, like, the orgasm is such a loaded, <laughs> it's such a loaded oh and and <laughs> sort of a intense totem, like, in a woman's life. A, because they're hard to come by for a lot right, of women. Right, they're not guaranteed. No, they're, they're not. not. It's, not a, it's not a slam dunk. No, and, right. and, and for a lot of my life, I think that was my struggle. So this is a piece that is really dealing with the complicated nature of female sexuality and the grief and the trauma and then the aliveness and excitement and sort of seeing the mess mm. that makes. <laughs> I don't wish for myself that I didn't have sex. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I wish for you that you, you keep having to sex, have sex, Julie. <laughs> I, say, I like having sex, but then it's complicated. You're not always guaranteed that it's going to be fun and great. Of course. Um, and then sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. And it would just be, this is very black and white and extremist. My therapist would be very upset with me. Sorry. <laughs> that it would be easier just to not want that, to excise that. And as women get older, a lot a lot of times libidos go away. There's menopause, perimenopause, all these issues. And then you can, you have a choice later to sort of address it. Am I going to take estrogen and testosterone right. and progesterone? Am I opting back into that complicated cycle when I don't necessarily have to, but I find myself there now I'm opting in. And yet- mm. I'm listening to you and I'm going, God, the thought of having sex with a new person just is, I just, (laughs) no, I just can't, I can't get there in my brain. I just think I'll talk in terms of your character. Does your character need to have new sex? Is the centerpiece of every orgasm in this, in your show, a new person providing or experience, helping to provide this orgasm? Yeah, because in order to world jump, she has to... Fuck a new person. Oh, but that's how she, wow, that's, how that's she really jumps. good. That's getting better so and better good. every sentence. Yeah, like her <laughs> orgasm is the portal to the multiverse. So she so she has to come, which is maybe your nightmare, Julie. Now we have but, like so many new questions. I'm like, does she want pressure. to? Does she want yeah, to the, jump universities? And it's like, I have to find an orgasm? No, she cheats on her husband in the first episode um, and then wakes up married to the guy she cheated on her husband with and is just oh. Like, what the fuck? (laughs) And then over the course of the season, basically learns that 
through orgasm, she's being transported into a multiverse and, and being dropped into all of these different relationships that her parallel selves are living. And each of them are kind of semi-accidental, <laughs> which is part of the comedy. She's not like seeking out a new partner all the time, but I think pandemic times, single people, it's just like, it's a different vibe, you know? Mm. <laughs> like, yeah. People are open for business. <laughs> so then she <laughs> finds her pla- herself in places she doesn't want to be and has to get out and has to find a partner to get out of there with. And then the whole time she's she's looking back at her marriage and wondering if she needs to return there. And so it's her kind of trying to find herself through all of these different people, including potentially her, her ex-husband. There's a, a Buddhist theme throughout, throughout the show. And when you talk about Julie, like, isn't it just easier to like renounce desire, which is at the core of like Buddhist philosophy, right? Like desire is suffering. It just brings mm-hmm. so much bad Dukkha, shit into right? our lives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Dukkha, um, the endless yeah. cycle of longing. I read this really interesting book, which actually was partially my inspiration for the show. That was basically like, that's a, a misinterpretation of Buddhist theology, that it's not desire that's suffering. Desire actually can bring so much aliveness mm. To, mm. to us. And a life without desire is one that is not one that I personally want to live, right? And it's not just about mm-hmm. sexual desire, but just desire in general. Where the suffering is sourced from is is actually craving, which is different than desire. It's like how we desire. Mm-hmm. And if we can desire mm-hmm. with more of an open palm, right? If if it's not about owning someone or owning mm-hmm. a feeling or grasping to something for dear life, because if we don't have it, we're not whole. It's like if we can be whole and <laughs> desire, then that's like enlightenment, which I loved as a philosophy. The show kind of plays with that. Do you direct every episode of the show? I did, yeah. You went from like married and directed to unmarried and undirected, basically. <laughs> and I was going to ask if you learned something about the way that each individual person sees orgasm through the lens of how they directed you in those moments. But Mm. you didn't because... I learned how I see it. (laughs) You learned how you see it. Did you learn how you see it? Maybe better, yeah. I think that on this show, I really pushed myself to like broaden my my visual vocabulary as a director. and, And the sex scenes were very much a part of that because in each episode, I wanted to distinguish the sex scene and sort of make each one its own special set piece. It did force me to look at myself as a director. And I think directing sex in particular is its own special challenge and one that's mired in so much problematic history in our industry, mostly because it's been (laughs) um, lensed by men and and with Mm -hmm. women being objectified in front of the camera. And so this was like such an empowering thing for me to direct those sex scenes and direct myself in those sex scenes and to direct from within the sex scenes, like I was naked directing my my actors. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> is complicated because that gets into a real power imbalance too because now we have intimacy coordinators and all this because right. they want to make sure that there is no sense of one sort of all, all great and powerful director, usually a dude, yeah. saying, you know, now, now, touch your boob, now. You know, being <laughs> yeah, sort yeah, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then making sure everybody's comfortable within the scene. How do you manage that as the director whilst naked 
in the scene with your actor. I had an amazing intimacy coordinator. So the the sex scenes were all like choreographed, you know, within an inch of their lives. And and that's really helpful in terms of making my actors feel comfortable. You know, if there's a touch of a breast, if there's a, a sort of like graze of an ass, it's all in a contract. There's nothing mm. that is coming up on the day that they are not aware of, that their team is not aware of. And because I think like a lot of these shots are like, oneers like they're shot in one and we're like the camera's looping around us and doing crazy things and so what people don't know who are watching sex scenes is that they're quite unsexy to shoot generally speaking because it's so technical so my actors were like so much so very much on my team we would go and watch monitor to see it. you have to take my shirt off right when you feel the camera around your Coming like by, right, right ear and then like and <laughs> then it. you have to thrust right when the camera's behind you you know it's like it's it's so choreographed but yeah I mean you do always have to be careful and um and I was lucky enough to be working with an amazing cast and crew who who not only made me feel really safe but just made made the environment really safe you do direct other people were you in the craft I don't think you were I wasn't, no. No. Okay. And you did a pilot as well. I don't think you were in that. I either. wasn't, yeah. Yeah. Do you is that easier? Strangely, no. <laughs> For me, I love directing from within like the belly of the beast, you know? There's something so exciting about directing from within a scene, directing while you're acting. Like I'm sure you do this too, Julie, but when you're in a scene with someone, you can shift your performance in order to shift theirs if if they're a receptive yeah. enough actor who's present mm-hmm. with you. And that's such an exciting ride to go on, you know, like to be a director who might not even have to use language, who could just be that's directing through performance is like mm. to me so thrilling. But also to just not be like twice removed from the scene itself, to not be at monitor at village, like you're just in there. You're like in the war zone, just like (laughs) doing the thing. I love doing both um, at the same time. And also when I'm acting, I get to modulate my my own performance. (laughs) So clearly I'm a control freak, but I, I like, I like, I like also directing things that I'm not in. I'm so sort of blown away. And I just, I keep, I'm like, okay, the name of the show is Quitters. I too quit a marriage and really painful. Thank you for being willing to share it. And I didn't want my marriage to end either, mm. um, but I contributed to it ending, of course, because you're 50% we all do, and yeah. knowing, no, no, I don't want this. And then realizing, oh no, this is, this is done. It's painful, but I really relate to you. That sense of bittersweetness is um, very real. Um, knowing yeah. you have to do it and knowing it's really painful at the same time. It is, was really bittersweet, you know, because I, I loved him very much. I still do love him. <laughs> As I said, you know, he's like my family. I think the worst emotional place, at least in, in relationship to be in, is, is the interim between knowing and doing. It's just hell because it's like when you finally do click and know, oh my gosh, it's not just about me being happier. Like I was very clear, like he is going to be happier, you know, like Mm. he needs this too. And it just takes so much courage to be able to say like, I think we both need this. It's so difficult. And, and I have so many friends, especially in the pandemic who have gone through it. Cause I think it did really test so many marriages and relationships. Um, Not to bring it back to slip, but I do think that it is about like the courage to to make a choice that might have 
scary repercussions. I mean, in the show, it does have scary repercussions and there is regret and there is remorse. And it's all the things that you're riddled with when you're making those decisions to quit something. Am I going to regret it? Am I going to want to go back? Are they going to take me back? And to have the self-worth, for lack of a better word, to know that like, of course, I'm going to feel those things. But just taking the risk is is enough for me to at least grow, <laughs> you know, and see if I if I'm better on the other side of it. How long ago did you put the final dot on the project? We locked picture in September. So we've just sort of been waiting uh, yeah. <laughs> for our for our April release date. We shot the show in 36 days, so it was a really short shoot. Wow. We shot in in Toronto and New York and um and then I edited in in New York all summer and and early fall. It was fast. It, it all happened really fast in an amazing way. Like I wrote all seven episodes and Dakota Johnson's production company came on to produce and, and brought it to Roku. And Roku read all seven and just gave me a green light without giving any notes, which is like unheard of. And it's why I wrote all seven episodes myself, because I wanted it to be mine. I didn't want there to be a lot of developmental interference, even though I knew that that was going to be the case because that just is the case in television. And somehow by like some grace of my guides (laughs) or (laughs) some spirit, I was given this incredible opportunity to just really make the show that I wanted to make. And in those six months since you finished your work on it creatively, does it, do you feel that it says still like what you mean to say now. Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, the cool thing is we don't have a pickup for a second season um, yet, but Roku did pay for a writer's room. And so we've written the second season. And so it's been nice for me to be able to put onto paper any of the, the sort of questions that have come up since in these last six months and put them into May's voice and see what else I as a person am exploring now, you know, two years out of my my separation versus what I was, yeah, a year and a half ago when I when the project began. So now you have a writer's room, which you don't sounds like you haven't done before. No. Is there a part of your exploration of your life, your sexuality, that you can or would or want to keep private? Or is yeah. the act of sharing it part of your process and it just needs to be done? My ex, his name's Daryl Ween. We we made a, our first film together was called Breaking Upwards, and it was a film that was very much based in an experiment we did in our relationship early on. We were in our early twenties, in which we took half the week on and half the week off, and on mm-hmm. the days off, we were allowed to have sex with other people and not talk about it. And so we made this whole movie about it, not really thinking that we would become like accidental mouthpieces for like (laughs) non-monogamy. And Mm -hmm. suddenly the questions became quite invasive. And I I remember really not liking that, Mm. even though I had put myself out there in such an exposed way. It's an interesting sort of fine line because I I love exposing myself in my work, but I, I, I do have some fear around how much people will feel they're entitled to ask right. me or 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 to know of me especially because in this I am so naked and it is pretty hypersexual even though it's many other things I'm still in the sort of waiting period you know of like do I need to be scared am I going to be okay but I I think hopefully the world has shifted in some ways where there's enough sex positivity to not just pigeonhole a person into one thing I've always kept a, a pretty 
strong line between my private life and my public life. And because I can't handle it. Mm. Not because I think that's the right thing to do, but because I can't handle it. I had an eating disorder all through my teens. And so whenever I get mm. on the scale of the doctor, I, was, I turn around because I can't handle it. Yeah. Because I'm like, I've decided there's some things in my life that I know I can't handle it, so I'm not going to. I've got kids and jobs, and I'm going to deal with the things I can deal with. And in therapy, I'll deal with the things I can't deal with the best I can. This idea of putting yourself out there and being able to handle what comes back, it seems like the big question. Like, you're willing to put out a huge chunk of the pie of, of you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean there isn't other sections that don't belong to the public. Of course, I watched Pam and Tommy, but then I watched the Pamela Anderson documentary. Yeah, amazing. And broke my fucking heart to see a girl who was raped at age 12 by an older man, not that it matters, but still disgusting, mm-hmm. and then say, why? Because I chose to take my clothes off in Playboy and is the rest of my life and sex life and body owed to the public. Yes. And when I saw that, I just freeze and I think to myself, oh, thank God I've never taken my clothes off. But then I listen to you and I think you've got some different line of of privacy within you, something that you do protect in yourself. Would you agree with that, that you can protect part of yourself? Yeah, yes. I mean, I think what was amazing about that Pamela Anderson documentary and why it had such a huge impact was because of her resilience in the face of just a lifetime of sexual objectification. I think that that it speaks to the moment we're in that people are actually able to see her in all of her facets now, mm-hmm. whereas she was a punchline literally up until this documentary. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. literally, they, she was a punchline in Pam and Tommy. Like, Ho- I'm hopeful that the framework is shifting slightly in the way that we can embrace women and women's sexuality in media so that it doesn't become as punishing and damaging mm-hmm. and limiting. I think that was my intention for this show was to go was to sort of put it in the world's face and go like do something with this but don't do that. <laughs> like you have to see me as all these things because May is also like a mess, you know? Like she's many things and she's multi <laughs> multidimensional and and multiversal (laughs) and also a sexual being. And I think like that's where we need to get to is to be able to see women on screen who are all of the things, not just the sexual object, not, not just Mm. the ingenue, not just the slut, not just the virgin, Mm -hmm. virgin, you know, not just these archetypes that have kept us so trapped. I guess I'm hopeful. Yeah, Julie, that, (laughs) that I'll be protected and still be able to spark a dialogue around these things. We are out of time, and I want to thank you so much. You made yourself so vulnerable in this conversation, especially to another woman, but I, I saw Chad spark up, too. He, thank you. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to watching the show now. I yeah, can't wait totally. to see it. I'll have them it's send this, you guys a link. This is one of the advantages of these platforms like Amazon and Netflix and now Roku, who used to be sales or gaming platforms or something, and that they are so determined to show their artistic integrity that they will give writer-directors like yourself a real voice and a real chance to showcase. You're lucky to be getting in right now with Charlie Collier's a pretty amazing guy. We're all going to watch Slip on Roku, and thank you, Zoe Lister-Jones. You were a delight. Thank you so much. So lovely talking to you both. (laughs) 